Shucks, folks. Let's see. Thank you. Come back and get it in a second. Okay. Bring it with you next week. It's going to be at least a three-part deal. <laughs> Let me ask you to stand, give you a quick stretch, as we're going to look at the, the, the theme verse. It's on page two at the top. Let's stand together. We'll just read it together. They're from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 2a. We'll read it all together. Found it, page two of the pamphlet. Okay, together. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. You may be seated. If I am driving to a place I have never been before, I always make a handwritten map of where I'm going. I know, that's old school. Yes, I have Google Maps on my cell phone, but I don't trust that. If I've been invited to your house for dinner, and thank you to those of you who've had me for dinner, and you came out to the car, you would see on my front seat a hand-drawn map of how to get to your house. That is because if I'm going to a place I've never been, I want to know exactly where I'm going and how to get there. We are all going to a place after we die. God wants you to know exactly where you're going and how to get there. And that's why we're taking some time, three weeks at least, to look at the subject of death. It's the one thing that unites us all. Pretty safe to say 120 years from now, None of us will be here. We will be eternally in one place or another. The Bible is incredibly helpful to tell you everything you need to know about death. And if you name the name of Jesus and you consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, you no doubt have sort of conflicting emotions about death. And the word we used last week, the technical uh, vocabulary, would be the word ambivalence. Ambivalence is an English word that describes having simultaneously both negative and positive emotions about the same thing. So if you look at your handout on page two, I've tried to capture the Bible's description of this ambivalence. So look at that at the top there. The ambivalence we feel about death from the perspective of what God made you and life to be, death is a terribly unnatural intrusion that we should disdain. So if, if you find yourself a person who hates death, Bible sanctions that way of thinking. On the other hand, from the perspective of what awaits believers for all eternity after they die, death is a necessary thing that we need not fear. So I'm unpacking, we're sort of looking at death and I'm, I'm circling around it with the Bible in hand, trying to pastly give you as much information as possible, not least to dispel your fears so that you live in confidence. When I leave the house with directions to your house, 
I'm confident. I know where I'm going. God wants you for that same confidence. So we're picking up in part 15, point 15. No promises how far we get. I've got a timekeeper over here and dear Mary, she's going to cut me after 30 minutes. The 15th thing to say from the Bible is you will die once God's plan for your life is fulfilled. He's sovereign. He willed your existence. The moment you were born was the second God wanted you to be born. The moment I breathe my last will be the second God has for me for my time and my stay on earth. God's sovereign. It should bring us tremendous confidence and comfort. And honestly, if you say, you know, Mike, that escapes me. I, I don't have that. And I understand that, that in a congregation like this, there's a broad continuum of degrees of fear and confidence when it comes to this. I, my wife and I are, are, are even different on this. Janice is like, if I get terminally Ill, Ill, send me to Jesus. I'm ready to go. Send me to Jesus. I'm not quite there. We're just different that way. I, she has a, this greater robust confidence than I do. Just even in one household, one marriage. I suspect in this room, it's all, it's all over the place. And so I desperately need the Word of God to frame, shape, saturate my thinking on this subject. So do you. David writes in Psalm 138, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Yes. Why? He's God. He fulfills his purpose for everything. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. And therefore, if I'm in that love, I will endure forever with that love. Don't forsake the work of your hands. The, the prayer of a man probably who knows his own frailty. Yeah, God's going to fulfill his purpose, but if left to me, I'll ruin it. Lord, don't forsake the work of your hands. I'm the work of your hands. The thing that can give you absolute confidence and assurance is that even more greater than your faith is God's commitment to give his son you as a gift forever. Your salvation is ultimately about the father saving a people through his son to his son to have forever. The plan for earth history is that Jesus would have brothers and sisters of every stripe and color to enjoy as his family forever. God will see that his son gets that gift. You're that gift. God will see that that happens. That's our confidence. It should give us peace. It should give our souls rest. David also says, Psalm 31, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Even with the sovereign understanding that God is completely in control of his life. He can pray for deliverance, for rescue, right? Because from, from one perspective, death is not a good thing. To want to live long is fine. It's fine. It's natural. It's human. Peter, nearing the end of his life, says, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Interestingly, the word for body there is not soma, the Greek word for body, but tent. He sees his body as a rental car. You drive it till you die, and you turn it in. Your body's a tent. And as we said last week, these tents get holes, 
they get worn out. But one day, the tent is going to collapse, it's going to be laid in the grave, and it'll be raised again next week. Paul, at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. His exodus, that's the Greek word. Israel had an exodus into the promised land. We will all have our exodus into the promised land. Glory, the presence of God. That song, I am bound, I am bound. Y'all sing that here? Paul sees his life as a drink offering. He's living for the glory of God. You know, there's only so much fluid in a drink offering. Over your life, everything you do is an offering of service to the glory of God, and at some point, you're done. Oh, Jesus, fill me every day with your spirit with wisdom, with discernment, to know where, how to serve you, to bring glory to you, because there's one chance in this life to do that, just one. At some point, I'll be poured out and finished. Therefore, 16, you can be assured God will see you safely into his eternal kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord, Paul says, will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The thought that God will bring Paul into Jesus' presence as a gift to Jesus leads him to doxology. To him be the glory. This does not mean you won't suffer. Go to 1 Corinthians 11 and see all the things Paul suffered en route to his final departure. But God is the one preserving his soul to the presence of Jesus. And therefore, you must know, beloved 17, there are only two ways to die in faith or unbelief. Only two ways to die. Many of you, if you hear someone's ill, sick, on their deathbed, you say, are they in faith? Are they a believer? Yes, they are. And it gives you tremendous comfort. There's only two ways to die. In faith or unbelief, Jesus said, John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Two ways to die. In your sins, believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is God. Jesus is your salvation. Only two ways to live. And Jesus explains in John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That's because trusting Jesus transfers your transgressions to him on his cross. You make sure you're a person that has had that transaction with Jesus. Take my sins. Jesus offers himself as Savior to every single person in the world. Take me. Trust me. I will remove your sins lest you die with your sins and suffer eternally consequently. You don't have to. Jesus will take them. Trust him. Believe in him. Lean upon him. Take him. 18. God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Ezekiel 18, 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Now, some of you may look at that verse and say, just a second, there's a lot of times when God is causing the death of people. 
What does it mean that he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone? It means this. God is not pleased that human beings are dying. What is the reason they're dying? Sin is in the world. Death is not part of the world God created. He takes no pleasure in the fact that human beings die. It is a constant reminder that we rebelled against God in the garden. Death is here because of sin. God takes no pleasure in that. And therefore, beloved, every death that you witness should be a summons from God to turn to him. Any death you hear about is a summons from God, don't die in unbelief. I take no pleasure in you dying and being cast from my presence forever. God takes no pleasure in that. That's why Jesus came in his ministry calling all of us to repent. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. There is a most sincere offer of salvation to every human being. It is a command, not a decision. You are commanded to repent and believe. And yet, 19, the death of God's own people was precious in his sight. Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That's because their death ends their struggle with sin. It ends their suffering. It ends whatever was painful about living in this tent. It ends being absent from the Lord's presence. It's precious. When, from a human point of view, when God sees someone finishing the race of faith, believing in him, that is precious. Now, we would be the first to say the only reason we finish in faith is God kept us in faith. From a divine point of view, he keeps us believing. <laughs> the preservation of the saints. But we must persevere in faith. How precious to God when one dies clinging on to Jesus 2 Corinthians 5, 6. So we're always of good courage. This is the man who, if you read in chapter 11, has the life beat out of him more times than you want to know. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We'd rather be with Jesus. We're on that later. But you see what Paul is saying? He's saying this life, even though it's better to be with the Lord, and it has to be, this life is not a run-out-the-clock situation. It's not kick back and just wait till you die. Absolutely not. It's not postponing getting to know Jesus just because you walk by faith and not sight, just because you can't see Jesus. No, no. We are given the privilege through the Word of God and the Spirit to press on to know the Lord, know Him more deeply, more richly, more clearly. That should be your goal, my goal, every day of our lives. And the fact that we, will, we are absent from Him and will one day be present with Him is not an excuse to abuse your body or to take stupid risks with your safety. It's not an excuse for those things. Death brings believers into the presence of Jesus. That's where Jesus wants you. He, he's, don't let this sound sacrilegious. He's one of those guys who's like, let's get together. You know those kind of people? Let's get together. I want to see, I want to be. 
He wants you with him. What could be more clear? John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is committed to your greatest good, which is to bask upon his glory. That's the greatest thing a human can, it's what you were made for, to bask upon the glory of God and burst into worship that isn't clouded with sin and selfishness and lack of sight. We will worship him for who he is. I get ahead of myself. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we were awake or asleep, we might live with him. See, why, why did Jesus die for you? That you might live with him. He loves you. You're precious to him. He wants you. He cherishes eyeball to eyeball as you do with people you love. Jesus promised the thief on the cross on Good Friday Today you'll be with me in paradise. The man on the opposite side died in sin, for all we know. Eternally away from the presence of God. Unthinkable horror. The thief, all he could do was trust Jesus. And there was a transfer, this faith in his heart, a transfer of his sins to the sins into the body of the man right next to him on that, on that hillside outside of Jerusalem. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. How do you think he felt? Well, he didn't, he didn't have long to enjoy the joy of his salvation, right? He had an hour or so. Therefore, number 20, it is appropriate to grieve the death of our loved ones before the Lord. I probably don't need to tell you that. Christians know how to do what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, which is grieve, but not as those who have no hope. If you've been to funerals of people that weren't believers, you see hopeless grieving. It's, it's so painful. You've, you've seen that, haven't you? Funerals where there's wailing and, 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 and just death in people's countenances, and they know, I'm never going to see that person again. It's this finality to it. It is not final when beloved in the Lord die in faith. It isn't final. It's just a matter of time till a great, precious reunion. See, we know death is not the way it's supposed to be. We grieve because in God made relationships such that when you love people, you're not supposed to be wrenched apart from them at death. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And this is what Jesus has come to reverse. Reverse the curse far as it's found. Even Jesus himself, standing at the grave of his friend Lazarus, knowing in about a minute he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and give Lazarus back to his sisters, Jesus is weeping. Mary and Martha are weeping. He doesn't show up and say, stop crying, everything's going to be good, we're going to go to heaven and be with Lazarus on that rest day. Stop crying, I'm going to raise Lazarus. No, he entered into their sorrow. So does Jesus enter into your sorrows when you're weeping the loss of a loved one. He's weeping right there with you. Death should remind us, number 21, physical death pictures spiritual death. What do you know about dead bodies? Dead bodies are unresponsive. A dead body has as much of an appetite for food. Sorry. A, 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 a dead body has no appetite for food, right? Nobody stood up in their coffin and said, I want something to eat. Beloved, that is a picture of spiritual death. 
When you are spiritually dead, you have as much appetite for God as a dead body has for food. Paul unpacks spiritual death many places. Once, Ephesians 2, 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus says, though, that when you believe in him, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, the present possession you get now, you're not waiting for. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What I'm saying is every death you see should prompt you to say, am I dead spiritually or am I alive spiritually? How would you know? Appetites. Spiritually alive people have certain appetites that they never had before. You know what they are. Not perfectly. Not consistently all the time, but there's an appetite to give thanks to God, to walk humbly with God, to love others, to worship. You have an appetite for the Word of God. If you say, look, I've never had an appetite for the Word of God. I've never had an appetite to know Jesus. You're probably spiritually dead still. You can ask the Spirit of God to make you alive and create these appetites in you. Frankly, if any of us had any spiritual appetites, it's all due to the work of God's Spirit anyway, right? To Him be the glory alone from start to finish. What are your appetites, beloved? Death also pictures the reality of our relationship to sin. I'm going to read this passage from Romans 6. It's thick. I'm going to actually start teaching on Romans 5 through 8 in my ATF in several weeks. So we'll get to more detail on this, but let me read it and make one point. Paul is basically addressing the person who says, hey, if it's true that wherever there's sin, there's always more grace in Jesus to cover that sin. True? True? Yes! That's the good news of the gospel. Grace always outruns your sin. Then let's go on sinning to let to make grace look all that more greater. And Paul says, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? This is the definition of a Christian. You've died to sin. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We'll get to that at the end of the handout. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, here's what's interesting. The first imperative, that's a command. The first imperative in the book of Romans is verse 11. The first thing Paul tells you to do because you believe in Jesus is verse 11. So, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in, in Christ Jesus. Every dead thing you see, maybe it's a dead bird outside, you, somebody on the news, every death should, could, should cause you to say, that should be my attitude toward indwelling sin. I'm dead to it. Now, there's a lot more to say about that. Come to my ATF. 23, the prospect of dying, facing the Lord, and giving account for our lives should make us sober and intentional about what we do. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Obviously, the framers of the Westminster Confession had that verse in mind 
when they penned the portion that you read from chapter 33 earlier. Everything you think, say, do, and don't do. There's an accounting for it. So Paul is saying, work from the future backwards in your life. Work from the future back. Today counts forever. I don't think we believe that. I don't think we want to embrace that intuitively. But boy, it is true. You will be exonerated for your sin for, because of Jesus Christ. But you're held accountable for everything you do. Where am I here? Sorry. Am I on 2 Peter? Yes. 2 Peter 1.10. Uh, Joe read it earlier. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What qualities is he talking about earlier in the chapter? Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. All these beautiful virtues to be practiced. What do they do? They bring you assurance of salvation. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are called to persevere. 24, we take nothing material with us to the next life. Pretty obvious, but the moment every single person in history dies, breathes their last, no matter what was in their bank account, they have not a penny to their name. Not a penny. All they have is a record of either living for the glory of God or not. It's all they have. Uh, this is uh, the sons of Korah tell us in Psalm 49. For he sees that even the wise die, the wise and foolish alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Janice and I are at the age now where we're beginning to ask our kids, what furniture in our house do you want when we're gone? Yeah, do you like that piece? Do you like that piece? We're beginning to parcel it out. I would say for the ha first half of our marriage, we, began, we were accumulating, we were buying, and then you get on the, the other half, and you begin to think, now who's going to have it when we're gone? Because we just know that beautiful cherry corner cupboard in the dining room, I mean, I love it. I love wood furniture. I just, you know, that isn't going to heaven with me. I might have one in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't have any idea. We're not taking that. It's obvious, I guess. Paul then commends contentment to us in this life. 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. He's probably commenting on this verse from, from Proverbs 49. What, what is this calling you to, beloved? What is this calling you to? Godly contentment, wanting what you have. Enjoying what's yours, not amassing, amassing, amassing. Where were Janice and I recently? We were driving around. <sighs> I can't remember. And we were seeing these enormous houses. Enormous. And I'm thinking, unless you had 50 kids, you wouldn't need a house that big. Just enormous. Look, I look at my house in Forest, Virginia, and I think, I'm rich. Commit with the world standards, I'm rich. But how much do you need? That, we wrestle with that. Therefore, it follows. 
Number 25, that your wealth in the next life is determined by what you store up for it in this life. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. So what do you need to look at here? What do I treasure? Well, what does my heart have most affection for? And this is just, I want to tell you how convicting preparing all of this has been for me. It's just, it's just, it's just slain my soul in this way. I know the future is the presence of Jesus, but I just objectively don't long for that as much as I enjoy things in this earth. I just don't. I think my wife does. I've got a lot to learn from her, as you can tell. (laughs) But I am distracted and enamored and enthralled with all the good things this culture has to offer me. And consequently, I was confessing to Jesus last night, forgive me, nothing I desire compares with you, but I don't desire you like I should. Oh, I need his grace. I need his mercy. I need his, his work in my heart. I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but that's, that's me. Look, look at what Paul tells most of us, because in the world standards, most of us, how are we doing? We good? Most of us are wealthy compared to the world standards. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Do you see how riches have a way of saying, trust me, trust me. You know, humanly speaking, the more wealthy you are, the less you know you need God. That's why Jesus said the poor are closer to the, the poor materially are closer to the kingdom than, than rich. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, humanly speaking, humanly, because riches give us a false sense of trust, satisfying our desires for God with things that aren't God. He says, instruct them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So in the face of your wealth, go to the doctrine of God and study the immense generosity of God, the goodness of God. Let that fill your heart and the things of this earth will grow, what is it, faintly dim? They are to do good. And this really is answering the question from the Matthew verse above it. What are the good things we're supposed to be storing up? They're to do good, to be rich in good works, generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is life indeed. There's a lot at stake. And here's where we end. Christ has taken hold of you, beloved. And if he hasn't, trust him. Believe him today. Give yourself to him that you may take hold of him who is life indeed. And there are profound implications as I've tried to show you for the the way we live day in and day out now. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we haven't got to the good part about how you conquered death and rose from the dead and just the glorious future secured for us through Christ. We're getting there. But thank you for my brothers and sisters. 
it's uh, just such, such a privilege to worship with them and benefit from their faith, see their love, the way they joyfully serve you. Thank you for them. And those of us who, who are fearful, we lack confidence, we're, uh, we know that our hearts don't long for you as we should. Have mercy, cleanse us, renew us, draw us to yourself to find life indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.